Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insights and stories from our team of writers. Uh, David is on holiday this week, so just me, Mark Chapman, and some of our writers. Coming up, Phil Hay will bring us exclusive insights on how Leeds United sealed their record-breaking deal for Rodrigo and how Marcelo Bielsa is getting his team ready for the Premier League. Our Tottenham writer, Jack Pitbrook, will tell us about going to Eric Dyer's house and his cameo role in the new Amazon documentary, all or nothing and I'll talk to Ryan Conway about his piece on The Athletic that asks if players taking a knee before Premier League games was just a gesture. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Well, let's start with Leeds, shall we? Because over on The Athletic, you can read right now Phil Hay and Adam Crafton's piece that details exactly how they managed to sign the Spain forward Rodrigo from Valencia for a club record £27 million fee. And Phil joins us now. It is a statement of intent, this, from Leeds. It is. It was a statement of intent weekend, particularly Saturday, where they've spent £40 million in the space of 12 hours or so on Rodrigo from Valencia and Robin Koch, the the centre-back, from Freiburg. Rodrigo's significant more than anything, apart from the fact that obviously he is a Spain international and he's he's an elite forward with, with a, a great pedigree, but smashes the transfer record that's been at Ellen Road for, for 20 years now, which was Rio Ferdinand back in 2000, and, and a record that you felt was never ever going to be broken until Leeds did get back into the, the Premier League. And, and I think because of the way the market's changed in that time and because of the way even championship top championship players cost you know exorbitant amounts of money now, it was always likely that Leeds would break it, but I think for the first deal of the summer to to do somebody like Rodrigo for a, you know, for a transfer fee like that, twenty seven million pounds is is significant in in the sense that it tells you that they're not coming in to um, enjoy the fun while it lasts. They, I think they really really do want to make sure that they're, they're an established Premier League club as quickly as possible. Now, we'll come on to how he might fit Bielsa's Leeds because. That's also a different piece looking uh, with the uh, athletics football analytics writer, Tom Warville. But as regards the actual transfer, was it quite a complicated one to do? Not complicated, but it took a lot of time um, and a fair amount of patience. There were other options for Leeds, particularly Ollie Watkins down at Brentford, who they, they liked and who they saw as a good fit for the way Bielsa plays and the, the system that he uses. But realistically, Watkins was going to cost roughly the same amount of money, potentially more, um, depending on what Brentford were, were holding out for. And the likelihood was that there wouldn't have been a significant difference in wages if, if Watkins was um, was looking for a, a significant rise on top of what he was earning down at Brentford. So they were drawn into the discussions about Rodrigo a month or so, or so ago. And I don't think at the outset anybody 
necessarily thought it was going to happen. I don't think at the outset they were they were convinced that this was realistic. From what I can gather, Rodrigo's first intention was to stay in Spain. Um, it was ideally to move to a Champions League club, and you'll know that he had um, Atletico Madrid and, and Barcelona both in for him at, at stage of the the past twelve months. Mm. As the time went on, and and as Leeds were able to sell the project to him and to to do presentations and and to speak to him at length, he started to get sold on on what they were offering. And I th- I don't think anybody is pretending that it's any secret that um, that Bielsa has been a, a big tipping factor in this as well. Someone said to me, you know, 40-50% of this is down to the fact that A, Leeds are in the Premier League, but also B, that, that he's coming to work with Bielsa and that, that he's got a, an absolutely elite coach to work with here. So there were a lot of factors in the end that, that worked in, in Leeds' favour, but I still think they're kind of mildly surprised that as, as signing number one and, and given, you know, what they were kind of expecting at the start of the summer, which was more investment in kind of domestic top-end championship players, I, I think there is an element of surprise that he is the one who's come through the door first. The reputation of Bielsa, as you say, will attract a lot of players. Do Leeds then let Bielsa get involved in the process of persuading a player to join or is it his reputation uh, more than enough to bring players in? It can be both, but I think what, what's interesting about the weekend is that when it, when it came to Robin Koch from Freiburg, Bielsa didn't speak to him directly. There was no kind of personal contact there. They, they sent videos out to him. They sent kind of packages to show him how Leeds played, what what would be expected of him and, and everything else. But with Rodrigo, Bielsa did apply the personal touch. He did speak to him um, in person, really to sell the move, to explain to him where he would he would fit in. And, and I think more than anything else, to, to convince somebody who was highly likely to have other offers and alternatives and, and potentially clubs with, you know, with bigger things in front of them this season later, the Europa League or the Champions League was it was likely to have them in for him and, and to have that on the table. But there were a lot of people involved in this. Victor Orta, the club's director of football, is is always the, the man who, who pushes these deals and, and keeps them going. But there was significant input as well from Andrea Radizani, the Leeds chairman. Um, he and he and Arnold Murphy, the Valencia chairman, agreed to fee over lunch on, on Tuesday after a lot of discussion. Leeds have a head of European recruitment, Gabby Ruiz, who did groundwork for this, and, and they also one of their club interns, of which Bielsa likes to to employ plenty. He was based in Spain, he's at university in Spain. He also helped to to put together the presentations and, and the other bits and pieces that were needed to persuade Rodrigo to do this. So it's been multi-pronged and I think you know from from the perspective of people who, who support Leeds or have followed them closely for, for 15 years, the, the the way that this has, has been done kind of accentuates the, the way in which they've changed over the past two or three seasons. They there have been periods in the EFL where they almost looked like a fairly amateur outfit in comparison to the way that, that really elite clubs operate but this is you know this was proper scouting this was proper recruitment and, and a lot of people involved to get the deal done we obviously need a narrative throughout uh, the whole of a pre-season and even throughout the whole of a transfer window I have already seen the articles are they the next Aston Villa? Are they the next Fulham in how much they're going to spend in this transfer window? I don't think the amount is significant particularly, or I don't think that's what, what you need to focus on. I think the difference with Fulham and Aston Villa was that the, the recruitment was expensive, but it was also widespread. So you were talking, you know, multiple faces arriving, big mm. changes to the teams as they'd been when they came up from the, the championship. And you, you can't pretend that somebody like Rodrigo won't change the fabric of, of Bielsa's side, although I still think it's odds on that Patrick Bam 
Bamford will probably start up front away at Liverpool on the first weekend of the season. But equally, Robin Koch coming in as the, the right-sided centre-back, you know, the, the initial plan was that Ben White would sign from Brighton and obviously that wasn't able to happen and, and Brighton held firm. But essentially they've gone looking for a light-for-light light replacement. So there's no significant change there. There's a change in, in terms of the face and the name, mm. but it will still be the, the same defensive organisation. Um, and, you know, my understanding is that Bales is starting to soften on another centre-back. I think it's likely that they that they will bring somebody else in, been linked with a player in Croatia. They're also keen on um, Axel Tunzebi over at Manchester United. Uh, and they will do another winger, um, number 10 type, to make sure that they're covered there. But I think four or five signings tops will be as far as they go in this window. I, I don't think it will be excessive. So financially, they might end up spending something close to, to what Fulham and, and Villa did after they were promoted. But I think in terms of the, the recruitment, it will look very different when it's finished. So as regards the player himself, you, you said you think Bamford will start at Anfield on that first Saturday of the season. How are they going to use Rodrigo when you did this uh, report with Tom Warville, the athletics analytics writer? Yeah, the, the point about Bamford is that obviously he's he's been ingrained in this system for a long time, and he'll have trained right through the um, through the summer with Bielsa. Um, Rodrigo is off on international duty with Spain this week, so it's highly unlikely that by the time the Liverpool game comes round, he'll have had much more than a, a handful of training sessions um, and, and friendlies with Leeds. And Bielsa is always a, a real stickler for that on players being prepped and ready and, and properly in tune with what he does. Rodrigo's pretty versatile, and he can be versatile, although. Valencia didn't really tap into that. If if you look at the way he played over at the Mestalla, it was almost always as a number nine. You know, most of his minutes were, were in that role and, and he can drop back to 10. He can play on either flank. Um, but over there, it, it was quite defined for him. I think the big difference for him at Leeds is that he's going from a team who, over the past sort of four or five seasons... I've not particularly liked to press, haven't sought to press, haven't used that as a, a tactic to a team who who see pressing as fundamental to what they do. I mean, the, the high press and the, the sort of aggressive attempt to, to regain possession quickly, um, the, the old passes per defensive action metric, um, that's always been vital for Bielsen. It's always been a, a very clear part of what Leeds do. So he is going to have to get into that mindset. Um, he's going to have to do a lot of what Bamford does, which is um, linking up with the midfield, working the channels, good amount of defensive work and, and the ability to battle for the ball in, in isolation and I think it's reasonable to expect that it will be much harder for Leeds to, to have the usual share of about 60% possession um, in this season coming up given that the standard is increasing they basically see him as a, as a very very good number 9 who if needed um, can play elsewhere and, and I do think they will probably feel deep down that it's a, in terms of you know finishing and, and everything else it probably is a marked improvement on Bamford Let's move on to another uh, Leeds player in Calvin Phillips, who is in the England squad. Uh, you sat down with him and analysed his game for another piece that's on the Athletic at the moment. So when you sat down with him, what did you learn? What I wanted to know more than anything was what goes through his head in different situations on the pitch. I mean, people who haven't followed Phillips too closely might not know the transformation he's undergone with Bielsa, but he's, he's essentially shifted from a, a kind of generic central midfielder who saw himself as quite box-to-box to an out-and-out defensive mid. And, and, you know, for my money, one of the best English examples in the country at the moment. And I know there's been a bit of griping over his inclusion in the England squad because he hasn't played in the Premier League and people are kind of revisiting Gareth Southgate's comments about Jack 
Jack Grealish. But it's worth saying that Southgate's been watching him for about two years, and you know, it's it, there's been a lot of examination of Phillips done in in that period, and his development and his growth under Bielsa has been pretty astonishing. I asked him first about you know what happens when you lose the ball when when Leeds lose possession and and are suddenly in that transitional period. You know, what do you do? And he said, well, my first thing is always to look for my man. Bielsa's is huge on, on man marking. And it's quite, a, some people see it's quite an old fashioned tactic, but it's always worked for him. And, and it's how he's he's implemented things at Leeds. And, and Phillips was saying, you know, that that is my first protocol. You know, I have to find my man. I have to look for him. I have to make sure that if I'm up the up the field and if I'm, I'm caught, you know, slightly out of position that I'm back and I cover him. Because if I do that, then essentially I'm all right with the coach on the touchline. You know, I've, I've done my job and, and that's fine. <laughs> but, but what was, particularly interesting I thought was when you know when you get the ball what do you do you know what are you looking for how do you read the game in front of you and he said quite openly he said first thing I always do is look for Pablo Hernandez without fail I always look to see if there's a ball to Hernandez because if you can feed him he can do things that nobody else in the Leeds team can do and he has that ability to open everything up and to you know to put pressure on on the opposition and I thought that was really quite intriguing you know to to realize that when he's looking up he's he, you know he is looking for his options and he, and he would be looking for two or three available passes but essentially if Hernandez is is free that's the ball and I think that gives you a clear understanding of how you know how crucial Hernandez is been to this team did the simplicity of it surprise you in any way both the simplicity of when they're out of possession in transition and then when he gets the ball it did because it doesn't look easy and every time I speak to you know current pros or former pros about that position most of them say it's the most difficult one on the pitch because you're you're sort of quarterbacking the, the whole system but you've got to be aware of what's over your shoulder you've got to be aware of, of what's in front of you Bielsa's team have played with an increasingly high line noticeably more this season than last season and you'd, you'd have a lot of the time you have Phillips essentially on the edge of the opposition box spraying passes about and, and in an area where he could be quite vulnerable to quick turnover ball and you know my, my assumption would be and, and Phillips is so laid back that he would never say this but my assumption would be that it's been a very difficult complex learning period for him this I would imagine a very very steep learning curve and, and the fact that he's made it look so easy and the fact that he's settled into it so you know successfully with a coach like this I think underlines why it is that Southgate and England want to have a, a look at him there's a, a massive amount of, of talent there and and as you know for, for all the complaints about the fact that he hasn't played in the Premier League don't forget that Villa tried hard to sign him last mm. summer and and felt that he was ready for that division without any question so I personally think he's he's well worth his chance he'll be as laid back in an England squad as he is at Leeds you sense? I think so. I, I don't... I mean, he's going to have to play well for England. There's there's no question about that. And he will know how important this is and, and it is a really big moment for him. Um, but that's just his kind of demeanour and and his personality. I don't think he'll he'll be any different playing for England than, than he is for Leeds. And I kind of get the feeling that if you can adapt and cope with Bielsa in the way that he has for two seasons, you've got a, a pretty good shout of, of coping with Southgate in England as well. Phil, thank you very much for joining us. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Plenty more writing from Phil over on The Athletic, of course, and you can hear more of him as well on the Phil Hay podcast. Wouldn't it be great if every clothing store you shopped at only had your size, the styles you like, and everything at the price you want? Well, Stitch Fix is a company focused on doing just that. It's an online personal styling company that makes getting the clothes you love simple. It's a completely different way to shop and it's all about you. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash Ornstein to set up your profile and they'll deliver great looks personalized just for you. You'll pay a £10 styling fee for each fix 
which is credited towards anything you keep. Schedule any time with no subscription. Delivery and returns are completely free and easy, so you can always send back items that aren't right for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash Ornstein right now. Well, players took a knee before the Community Shield matches last weekend, but the long-term plan for how English football can help to fight racism is unclear. Ryan Conway has written about this for The Athletic. Ryan is with us now. From your piece, the Premier League, it would seem, has not decided on how to approach this at the moment. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I would think that is pretty fair indeed. It was decided that players in the men's and women's Community Shield would take a knee, but as you know as far as the league campaign goes um it seems nothing has has been determined my understanding is that conversations and dialogue are yet to take place as to you know how we proceed for the 2020-21 season proceed with taking a knee or proceed with fighting racism or both i mean both you yeah. know um <laughs> The thing that we have now is after what we saw in the NBA, in the WNBA, in the MLB, um, tennis with Naomi Osaka, you know, boycotting her game, there is pressure to continue this this movement. And that's what it has to be. It's it's a movement. You know, I, I saw someone on Twitter say it's a movement, not a moment. We, we have to make that the case. And I think it would be an enormous own goal, without the pun, um, if the Premier League were just to revert to type. You know, we spoke to Sol Bamba recently and, and he said, you know, it, it's kind of just trendy for football to do this. You know, you roll out your hashtags and, and the commemorative shirts and, and stuff like that. And then once the sort of dust has settled, you know, everything is, is reverted to type. The real substance will be in the numbers. It will be how many more black executives you see. It will mm. be how many more black managers and coaches that, that you see. It'll be punishments for racism stacking up with punishments for Nicholas Bentner wearing Paddy Power boxers. You know, (laughs) stuff like that. That's the real, the real, real substance. But until we get to that point, I feel we have to keep this conversation going. People will ask, you know, what is the point of a knee? Well, you have to start somewhere. Colin Kaepernick in the NFL, to take that example, he kneeled four years ago and people still didn't want to listen. The requisite amount of action has not been taken and as a result that led to the Milwaukee Bucks deciding that they weren't coming out of the locker room and that is the point of taking the knee it is a peaceful protest it is a starting point for change it's taken four years though hasn't it from Colin Kaepernick taking the knee to getting to the to the Bucks not appearing in a in a playoff game that's that's a heck of a long time and also Kaepernick was alone and doing it I know a couple of other players joined him eventually but Kaepernick was alone and doing it and and there will be plenty who argue that that cost him his career. So when Sol Bamba talks about it being seen as trendy here, there there aren't careers on the line in the same way that there were for Kaepernick. Yeah, and I think what Colin did took tremendous, tremendous courage. As a Green Bay Packers fan, I hated him as a player because he torched <laughs> me. But 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 that's but that's complete. That's completely beside completely beside the point. I actually have a painting of him taking a knee hung up in my office. Um, because that kind of courage to me, I can look at that and that kind of courage yeah. is something that, that, that resonates with me even on the toughest days. You're right, the Premier League, the EFL, you know, whoever has, has has decided that players and refs and all this collectively taken, it kind of mitigates the risk. The true test will be when fans are allowed back in. We saw in MLS that, you know, some fans booed. A league 
with an image that wants to be squeak clean as the Premier League, I imagine that's not a very good look for them. This will be a true test for when fans are back in. If if things revert to tight, but you say you're going to continue to support those who want to peacefully protest, you know, is a you know congregation of boos really good for the for the league? Also, the question remains that when do these players, if you are going to revert to you know not taking a, a mass knee pre-game well when does that player get the time to protest do you have to go to the ref and, and beforehand and say look I, I'm, I'm going to take a knee before kickoff do does the ref do, do all games deliberately get delayed sort of 10-15 seconds for say three o'clock kickoffs so whoever wants to protest peacefully can because mm. you know here unlike in America we don't play no anthems before any game so where is that space for any individual that, that wants to peacefully demonstrate like that. And at the minute, I'm not finding adequate answers. So from your conversations with the footballing authorities, it's going to be left to each individual what how they choose to make their feelings known. But as you say, if there's no universal way of doing that, the referee could blow the whistle to kick off and six players on one team could be taking a knee. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw that in the, the Champions League second leg, um, Manchester City versus Real Madrid. The referee blew the whistle and Raheem Sterling dropped to one knee yeah. and the game just the game just unfolded around him and Raheem Sterling, quite rightly, looked um, uh, very frustrated by that. Well, we've already uh, spoke about with Ryan uh, the walkouts that happened in America last week, including in the NBA in protest at Jacob Blake's shooting. Here is The Athletic's David Aldridge on the NBA Show podcast discussing the boycott and why change is necessary. The frustration I felt from the guys once we had this latest shooting in Kenosha um, was, I think, the frustration that all of us feel, that we've done all this protesting and there's been all this kind of real realignment, I think, in terms of attitudes in, in the country with regards to Black Lives Matter and other things. And yet you see the exact same thing happen again to another black man. And it's just, you just feel like every time you roll, it's like Sisyphus. You roll the rock up the hill and it rolls back right over you again and again and again. You just get weary of that pushing up the hill. And I think that's where this came from was that kind of weariness that nothing ever changes, that nothing ever seems to get better. And then on top of this man being shot in Kenosha, you have armed militias with the apparent tacit approval of the Kenosha Police Department just going out and shooting protesters last night and killing two people. Um, And you just throw your hands up and go, well, what the fuck are we doing? You know, why are we doing this? It just it just seems like it's and and you want to fight that feeling that nothing is going to change and I'm giving up and you don't want to have that be your kind of ending but you have to get people's attention again and i think that was what this was all about was getting people's attention recentering people on why all of this happened in the first place and i think that's where it came from it's david aldridge on the nba show podcast ram what's your reaction to that yeah i listened to that podcast just after the protests um and it moved me to to tears kind of moving me to tears a little bit right now um Obviously, if you if you listen to the full thing, you you know how emotional David gets about that, um, rightly so. The boycotts of the Milwaukee Bucks, it was right. It was kind of a, a recentering of no, we you know this this will not stand. We we cannot continue to have this um, have this happen. Not just in America, not just in Britain, but in but in the world. Sport is a privilege. 
You know, we are privileged to to watch these athletes and do what they do. If Raheem Sterling tomorrow decided he was quitting football and was going to go flip burgers, if he decided he was going to go sell cars or or whatever it may be, he would still be a black man. You know, if Venus Williams chucked in the tennis racket, no matter where she went in life, she'd still be a black woman. And I, I think a lot of the times that's what football fans don't see. They see a person representing their club, but that is it. You know, you wear X shirt, so you represent this club, which means you represent me. And I don't think that's a fair assessment of anything because in, 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 in no other walk of life does that really apply. And I, I think that's incredibly, incredibly unfair. People get the message distorted that saying Black Lives Matter means you align yourself with the official organisation. You don't have to be aligned with anything to protest racism. You don't have to be aligned with anything to protest any kind of inequality. And it is baffling to me the resistance that is put up to equality. Do you think as well, I mean, you, you sort of, I mean, you mentioned Raheem Sterling there and you talk about the individual. I wonder whether our football over here needs, and Manchester City have been very good with, with Raheem Sterling on this and have encouraged his individual beliefs and personality to take the lead on this subject. There are lots of other areas where footballers aren't meant to give an opinion and we don't like individuality and we don't like opinion. And I was struck, I mentioned to you before we recorded this, I was struck by Anthony Lynn, who is the head coach at the LA Chargers, a black head coach at the LA Chargers, on a Zoom meeting with all of his players, saying that it is his job to encourage them to be the individual that they want to be and to stand up for their beliefs whilst at the same time trying to protect them as well. And I thought, I found that really powerful, actually, when when he spoke to them. And I do wonder sometimes whether we are all guilty in football and in a lot of sport of not allowing players to be anything other than players. As you say, Raheem Sterling, whatever career he chose would still be a black man with his opinions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think sometimes the lack of senior coaches speaking publicly can be disheartening. Now, I, I made a very concerted effort to ask Philip Koku pre-game, you know, during, just in the wake of the, the George Floyd shooting, um, I made a concerted effort to, to ask him about, you know, racial injustice in society because, and sometimes I think, you know, this is why it's important to have a diverse media. Yes, I'm the only black reporter that works that beat, so that affect that affects me. That affects me personally on some level, and 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 I want to know what that coach thinks of that. He gave an incredibly articulate answer, an answer which I was very happy with, and felt that every black person at Derby County would be supported by their manager, and that to me is incredibly powerful. That to me helps me sleep at night a little bit better because he was willing enough to answer the question head on and he was willing enough to understand that black people in the world and some of those black people he manages you know some of those black people he he calls his staff are disadvantaged and for me, that that's a big moment. I, I, now, I, you know, I, I don't claim to sit and, and just watch 24-hour news coverage all the day, um, sports news coverage all day. But for me, there, I was disappointed that there was not um, more questions being, you know, asked about that, or, or at least not asked for television. 
um, mm. about about stuff like that. I woke up the morning after the Milwaukee Bucks protests and basically after the NBA had, well, they termed it postponed, but basically all their teams were going to yeah. boycott. So yeah. I, I, I love how they tried to soft, <laughs> softly word that. So after that round of playoffs, I woke up, you know, and thinking this has got to be the thing that, everyone is talking about in UK sports media. How could it not be? Just because it happened in America, that could very easily happen over here. Do you think it might? That's a, that might be a very unfair question because you've got no idea, have you? Actually, no. Th- to thinking about it, that's, that's, a, that's a very unfair question to I have think, thrown you. No, no, I think, I, I, no, I think, it, I think it's, it's fair that, look, I think that the onus is on people like myself, um, people like my colleague Karl Anker, um, people like ADU who's producing this right now, um, to to keep this going, you know. Again, as we said with, with Raheem Sterling, if me, Carl, and Ada chucked this all in tomorrow and and did whatever we decided to do, we'd still be black people. It is tiring, it is exhausting, but I have a platform, I have a position in the media, and I must use it to speak on issues that are important. And if I feel those issues are being underrepresented, then I feel all the more duty to do that because otherwise I, 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 I don't just do a disservice to my industry I do a disservice to my family my family that came over in the Windrush generation um, my grandma came over in, in 1961 you know experienced awful racism she did not have the platform that I have so the onus is upon me in the media to do that and the onus will be upon a lot of black men and women to do that as as well we need allies of course we do and we you know and we've got them let's not pretend only black writers are black are writing about this because they're not that was then what i was going to say to you the onus it should be on me as well shouldn't it in in this situation as a white man who believes in what you're saying do you think the onus is on is on me and others like me as well i think it's on all of us mark i I think i think it has to be it can be very self-righteous and it can be really self-indulgent at times to be like you know i'm the only one that's writing about this or it's me but really if if we're gonna if we're serious about change in in all aspects of in all walks of life it has to be all of us pulling in the in the same direction and and when you you read or see something or, or listen to something uh, or and think no that this is this isn't right you know this isn't right at all i i don't believe that that represents the ideals that my politicians tell me that this country represents i don't believe that represents the ideals of of everything i am sold in this country it is on all of us to speak up and to take action and you know what sometimes doing that gets you in a bit of trouble as you alluded to some will believe it cost Colin Kaepernick his job but you have to you have to stand up for what you believe in as a person and you have to have hope that within your environment that allows you to do that on your platform that you have the support that allows you to to do that Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener to our show, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands and they deliver your beers straight to your front door. 
Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, listeners to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast get two extra free beers. Well, let's talk Tottenham next on the pod because this week sees the release of the first few episodes of the Amazon docuseries All or Nothing. It followed Tottenham over the course of that very eventful 2019-20 season. There's also... Uh, a cameo role for the Athletics Tottenham writer Jack Pitbrook. He's with us now. Presumably, you've uh, you've been mobbed, have you already since appearing in this? Difficult to walk down the street. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the thing about the bit with the so I'm I'm in twice. I'm slightly embarrassed to say, uh, both in the press in in the press room at the Tottenham Hotspur's training ground. Quite, it's it's not that hard to pick me out. Although I am in a room full of badly dressed white men. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's just like a kind of my gormless face before Mourinho walks in to give a press conference. What's the second appearance? The second one is also a gormless face before a press conference. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I'm very much in character. (laughs) Let's widen it out from from your specific appearances. Um, uh, You've seen the first three episodes. Are they good? Uh, I liked it, yeah. I liked it. I think it's it feels like more of a documentary than the Manchester City one. Uh, it's got more. I think it's got more drama and plot and jeopardy. I think the the city one was very very glossy, but I think it was also undermined by the fact that city was so good that season that there was it was impossible to make any real drama out of it. Whereas in this one, halfway through the first episode, you get Pochettino being sacked and Mourinho coming in. That said, there are fans will recognise that there are there are holes in the material, not least the fact that there is very little coverage of the sacking of Pochettino itself and that news is delivered by clips from radio and TV so there are gaps and there are omissions and it's not perfect but I think if you want to see how Mourinho runs a club then it gives you a good idea That's interesting that because I've, I've mentioned this a few times, you look at the all or nothing uh, that the Americans did with the LA Rams a few years ago, their head coach Jeff Fisher was uh, sacked midway through their season and although you didn't see him being given the news you then saw him giving the news to the team and the squad and then being in tears so so they were right in the thick of it then but you don't see any of that kind of thing with Pochettino no not at all Pochettino is actually barely in it to be honest he does one piece to camera early on but the whole Pochettino era only takes up 22 minutes of the first episode and uh, Dave Heitner wrote a good piece about this in The Guardian the other day saying that Pochettino was simply much less keen on the whole idea than Mourinho ever was he obviously he clearly didn't want his private meetings being filmed he didn't want he didn't think it was really the right thing to do at a football club and that very much and that is borne out by the availability of footage and how how there is so much more Mourinho footage than there is of, Poch- of the Pochettino time. Is it the Jose Mourinho show? Absolutely. It is unquestionably the Mourinho show. He 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 could not look more enthusiastic than he does. He he kind of has, I, I mean I know that technically Tom Hardy is the narrate, the narrator, but it feels as if Mourinho is the narrator as well because everything is set up to be kind of told from his point of view and he sets up you know, you see him discussing with his coaches what the problems are. Then he goes away to try and come up with a solution to the problem. And then he puts it into action. It's all, it kind of feels like it's all being processed through his mind. And the, I think the, the one most revealing aspect of it is Mourinho's willingness to have the cameras in his one-on-one meetings with players. 
So he has these meetings with Harry Kane, Deli Ali, and Eric Dyer in his first few days as Tottenham manager. And he's got cameras in the office. And it, it does make for fascinating TV, seeing the different kind of tactics he goes for with those three guys, the, the things he says to either kind of puff up their ego in the case of Harry Kane or to kind of have a kind of bit of a dig at them in the case of Deli Ali to try and get the best reaction out of them. It does say something about Mourinho's character, the fact that he he's such an exhibitionist that he wants all this stuff to be shown to the world. But is that dig at Deli Ali done in a, in a way that Mourinho comes off comes out of it looking good i don't know it depends okay that's a you know that would be a, that depends how you feel about it really like he's okay. very hard on delhi he does say to delhi early on you know i'm gonna be i'm gonna be hard on you all the time and that's because i like you he calls him a fucking lazy guy in training uh he in his one-on-one with delhi he says you know i don't know why you're maybe not as good as he used to be, maybe you haven't fulfilled your potential. He asked if he's a party boy. He says he doesn't want him to retire with any regret. So he, he is hard on Delhi. You know, whether whether or not you think that's the right way to talk to a young player, well, frankly, I think that I don't think that Mourinho has been able to get much out of young players in the last ten years. I think that's borne out by what happened at Manchester United. If David was here, you wouldn't be allowed to swear. With me, I have no problem with it at all. Uh, so, um, although David will be surprised when there's an adult content warning when he downloads this podcast, uh, <laughs> let, let's move it on to Eric Dyer then, because you've been round to uh, his house to have a little chat with him. That's on the Athletic this week. And it's very different for him under Mourinho than it was under Pochettino. Yeah, he's been one of the big winners, I think, of the Mourinho era, in the sense that he's got his new contract, and he that's because he's got what he always wanted, which is to be a starting centre-back for Tottenham. It's been a pretty difficult last few years, Dyer, with appendicitis and injury and surgery and in and out of the team and not never really got a run. But it's only really been Mourinho who's backed him to play him at centre back. And he's I think he was I think he was really very good, particularly either side of his suspension after lockdown. And he spoke he spoke very honestly about all this and said that he does see it at the start of a new new chapter, a new st- new start for him at Tottenham and he's very much looking forward to the new season. So what happened with him and Pochettino then? Well, so at the start of last season, so sort of July 2019, when Dyer was recovering from an operation, he said to Pochettino, look, you know that, and this is, I think, my interpretation of his what he told me the other day, he said, look, you know I've always wanted to go back to centre-back, and I think, we should, I think it should happen now. And if it doesn't happen now, then I'll have to look elsewhere. And this would have been when Dyer had two years left in his contract, so he was coming into a position of power regarding the club. And he did, you know, I don't think it was an argument. Dyer did tell me that Pochettino said that he respected the fact that he had such a clear opinion on this, that Pochettino thought it was a very good and beneficial conversation to have. And that if Dyer deserved to play there, then he'd play. So I don't I don't think I would, like, frame it as a falling out between Dyer and Pochettino or a confrontation. Uh, and then, to be honest, Dyer did get fit. And it's, we've kind of forgotten this now because of everything that's happened. But in Pochettino's last two games as Tottenham manager against Red Star Belgrade and Sheffield United, he had Dyer as, as a centre-back. And I think Pochettino did realise at the very end of his time at the club that Dyer and Sanchez was a better long-term defensive pair than Alderweireld and Vertonghen. Now, obviously, Mourinho came in and moved Dyer back into, into midfield because that was, you know, it was as a holding midfielder that Mourinho had tried to sign Dyer for Man United in 2017. And Dyer basically had to repeat to Mourinho what he'd initially said to Pochettino, which is, I want to be a centre-back now. Please play me at centre-back. That's my best position. I'll prove my worth there. 
it's been a long journey to get where he wants to be. Do you think this alters his international career as well? Well, so Southgate has picked him as a centre-back for the squad for this week's games uh, against Iceland and Denmark. And that's great because Dyer hasn't played for England since uh, the third, fourth place playoff at the Nations League in Guimaraes against Switzerland in June 2019. So if he can get back in the England setup as a centre-back, that's great. To be honest, I think it's like it's easier to get in the England team as a holding midfielder than as a centre-back because England have got a few good centre-backs and they don't have any good holding midfielders. So that would be like the path of least resistance. But it's you know it does say something about his form that Southgate has picked him as a defender. Uh, there are going to be a lot of uh, Tottenham players who uh, also play international football who are going to have an awful lot of games this season with Tottenham uh, starting very early in the Europa League. Uh, we have just heard as we're recording this, they've been drawn against Lokomotiv Plovdiv in the second round of qualifying. Anything you can add to that, Jack? Have you, what have you learned about Lokomotiv Plovdiv in the last five minutes? Well, I've been on their Wikipedia page. Yes, and excellent. Good start. I... Uh, I haven't heard of any of their players, I'm afraid to say. Uh, I can reveal that they played Bolton Wanderers in 2005 in the UEFA Cup, which is not a game that I remember at all. Um, And to be honest, Chappers, that's it. Like, I've got almost nothing else to say on this, unfortunately. I'm trying. I'm I'm trying, but I just don't know any more about Lokomotiv Plotiv. I think think that seems a very appropriate way uh, to end this chat, then. Thanks, I've really enjoyed it. (laughs) Well, that's it from us for this week. We were going to do something on Lionel Messi as well, but because that story changes virtually by the day, we've actually got our very own Messi cast podcast at the moment that you can find on this feed. So whenever the story updates, there'll be a new Messi cast podcast for you to listen to. And the next uh, Unseen and Chapman pod will be next week. Thanks very much for listening.